Welcome and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join David Keane for his message. 430 years is a long period of time. If, if we took that on a timeline from when um, Europeans or, or the British came to this country, we'd only be just over halfway through that period of silence. We'd have almost 200 years to go. That's, that's the period of time we're talking. It's, it's a long, long time where these people were, were born into families where generation before generation before generation, several generations back, heard God and they heard the prophets of God speaking and they saw the miracles of God, but then there was nothing. And so when Jesus started this ministry, that's like the whole nation, all of the people were were on the edge of their seats. Is it any wonder that people flocked to him? And so he was baptised, God took him out to the wilderness, and then he came in and and in Luke chapter 3, Luke 4, we we see that he opens the scroll in the temple, and and he makes a declaration from Isaiah 61 about his call. And, And everything he said, whenever he spoke, he spoke with authority unlike the teachers of the law, and people would comment on that. They would marvel. Even, even, the, even the demons obey him. Even the wind and waves obey him. He, he spoke with authority into this realm. And in Jesus' teaching, Jesus actually spoke a new theology, which actually wasn't new at all. It, it, it brought things back to the original, and it brought things back to God's original plan But Jesus spent three years trying to teach these people, trying to teach his people what this new teaching and this new kingdom he refers to looks like. And one of the biggest theologies or one of the biggest overriding themes of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels is what they call the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus refers to it time after time after time. And so last week we got to this point where we just started touching on three different messages of Jesus, and they're the three that we're going to focus on tonight. Because if we tried to cover all of the the theological truth that Jesus covered in three years, it would take us years of study. Not really. We couldn't do it justice in in many years of not just sermons, but but three-hour Bible college lectures. And so we can't really even hope to try and plumb the depths of what Jesus taught. Uh, But what I want to do tonight is I just want us to understand a few, uh, not only overriding themes, but revolutionary themes, and and themes that I would say are fundamental to us understanding the entire message of Jesus. Without an understanding of these three themes, then what we end up with, even today, is an Old Testament model of religion, rather than what, what I refer to as a new covenant model of power. Because Jesus came with, a, with such a fundamentally, radically different message to what these people had grown up with that most of them, in the end, uh, uh, considered that he was a heretic. You know, like this is... Uh, imagine when, when Jesus was baptised uh, in the Jordan River and God spoke from heaven saying, this is my son. You know, it tells us that, that when he was baptised, all of the... Or when, when John, whenever John preached, all of the Pharisees, many of the Pharisees came to listen. So many of those Pharisees were probably there and probably heard God speak from heaven to say, this is my son. And yet when Jesus declared it, they said, that's heresy and he needs to die. You know, there was hard hearts there. But his message was so foreign to what they had grown up with that rather than recognising the God of the message, they rejected the one who was actually teaching them what the message should have been in the first place. And, you know, sometimes I guess we can judge the the first century Jews. And um, for for many years, for hundreds of years, actually, Christians in the church did judge the first century Jews. Uh, There was a lot of Christian teaching that that, that went right into what they call anti-Semitism, blaming the Jews for the death of Christ. 
But in actual fact, we too can miss the heart of the message of Jesus and we too can, can revert to this dead religion of works if we don't understand the kingdom of God. So tonight I just want to, I want us to go through in, in a little bit of detail about this thing called the kingdom of God. Because you see, Jesus didn't really help us too much because when he started describing this kingdom, he described it in all sorts of ways. Like he, It would have been easy for him just to put it in a neat little box to say, well, this is actually what it is and learn this and you'll be right. But he didn't do that. He said the kingdom was like good seed being sown. It was like a mustard seed. It was like leaven working through dough. It was like a treasure in a field, like a pearl of great price. It was like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering all kinds of animals. It was like a householder who brings new and old treasures forth. It was like a king wanting to settle accounts with his, uh, with his debtors. The kingdom's like a landowner seeking to hire labourers for his vineyard. It's like a man who entrusts his possessions to his servants before going on a journey. It's like a king forgiving his servant's debt, and then when the servant refuses to forgive another servant, bringing that debt back against him and punishing him in full. It's like a rich young man being told to sell everything he owns and follow Jesus. The kingdom's like two sons, one who insults his father and takes off with his, all of his inheritance and squanders it and comes back, and another son who never leaves, but in his heart is far away. The kingdom's only found by a narrow road and a small gate, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you never see it. God's kingdom is forcefully advancing and forceful people take hold of it. It doesn't come with your careful observation and we can't say here it is or there it is because it's inside you. No one can see the kingdom unless they're born again. No one can enter it unless they're born of both water and the spirit. It's not of this world. It belongs to the poor in spirit. And it also belongs to those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So what is this kingdom? (laughs) That doesn't really help us too much. We have all of these pictures that Jesus painted. And all of those are in scripture. All of those are Jesus' teachings about the kingdom. Because he wasn't trying to define the kingdom. He was trying to define the heart of the kingdom. And the king of the kingdom. Because all of those pictures represent and, and paint pictures of what God is like what his reign is like and what his people are like if they are part of his kingdom. He's describing the kingdom of God rather than defining the kingdom of God. And sometimes in our Western mindset, we like definitions. You know, we like we go through the, the, the Gospels and we, 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 we critically analyse them and say, well, this, this said it, that, that happened this way and Matthew said it this way and Luke said it another way, so one of them must be wrong because we think, we're assuming that everything is, is clinical and chronological and, and uh, uh, just a narrative. Whereas the Jewish writers, they were writing with particular views in mind and with particular teachings in mind. So when we read scripture, when we read the Gospels, we're reading not only the words of Jesus, but we're reading the words of Jesus that Matthew put in a certain order for a certain purpose because he was trying to, to, to give a certain message in his, in his letter. And Mark did the same and Luke did something totally different and John's is, is far different from the other four. But none of them are actually wrong because they're not identical to each other. And so it is with Jesus. You know, we, if we try and define the kingdom by one of those stories, we end up with a religious box. And whenever we create this religious box, God won't fit into that box because he's God. And, and even if your religious box is completely scripturally correct, he won't get in that box because it's a box that was created by a person. And, and God surpasses and supersedes all, all, all limited definitions that we try and create for him. 
And you know, this kingdom of God, one of the one of the ways Jesus described it regularly was like leaven or like a mustard seed, something that starts really small, it starts inside our heart and it just keeps growing. And and it grows so much that it becomes that in the case of leaven, it fills the entire loaf. In the case of the mustard seed, it becomes one of the biggest trees of all, starting from one of the smallest seeds. And this is part of the characteristic of God's kingdom, because God's kingdom starts small, it starts in our heart. But the whole message of Jesus is, as you've received, now you give. As, as God's spirit starts in you, we then give that out, share his love with others, and that, that's how the kingdom continues to grow. So let's talk for a moment about what they call kingdom theology, because I just want to put a little bit of a theological uh, framework around what we're talking about. So there's a, there's a term called kingdom theology, and it's a system of Christian thought that elaborates on what they refer to as inaugurated eschatology. Sounds really big, doesn't it? Ben, you probably know what that means straight away, don't you? Which means it's a way of understanding the various teachings of the kingdom of God found throughout the New Testament, and its emphasis is that the purpose of both individual Christians and the church as a whole is to manifest the kingdom of God on this earth. And it distinguishes between the current world and the world to come. And, and so they refer to the here and the hereafter. The, the, the first one who referred to the, the terms of the already and the not yet was a, uh, a theologian named Gerhardus Voss early in the 20th century. He believed that we live in the present age, in the now, but we're awaiting the age to come. And in the now, we are in the kingdom of God. And God wants his kingdom to actually spread into this world. But in the hereafter, the age to come, is when we are going to be completely under the reign of God. All that is not under his reign will be separated from him. But we're not in that place now, we're in the now. A George Eldon Ladd in the 1950s, who was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, he examined this concept a lot more fully. And he, said, he argued that there were two true meanings to the kingdom of God. Firstly, he proposed that the kingdom of God is God's authority and right to rule. So it's, it's his right, because um, he is the king of the kingdom. But also that it refers to the realm in which God exercises his authority. I think Ben, you were preaching recently about uh, God's kingdom is wherever God is actually in authority. And in our lives, God wants his kingdom to be through all of our lives. But he actually gives us the right to decide whether that part of my life is going to be part of the kingdom of God and he will have authority over that part of my life or not. And just like in the picture back in Genesis, when he comes into those dark places and speaks, he brings life, he brings order, he brings beauty. And he wants to do that in our hearts too. But he gives us the right to leave those as dark, empty, dry places if we choose to do so. There's consequences with that, just like we saw all through the Old Testament where people chose to, to come out from that place of, of, of relationship with God, that there was that consequence just like in Genesis 3. And so wherever God's, wherever God's authority, and well, sorry, wherever he exercises his authority, that's described in Scripture both as a kingdom that is presently entered into and as one which will be entered into into the future. So there's always this thing of now and then. And salvation's the same. You know, salvation, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. You know, this kingdom is past, present, and future. And that's consistent with all of the biblical narrative about God. He is the beginning. He is the end. It doesn't say he was the beginning. He will be the end. He is, present tense, the beginning, the end. He is in all those places at once. And his kingdom is too. So Lad spoke of the two ages, this age and the age to come. 
And this age is often referred to as the end times. Now, the end times aren't just this, this book by Tim LaHaye that made him millions of dollars, a fiction story that's based on a, a particular interpretation of, of a certain thing that may possibly be slightly alluded to somewhere in Scripture. Um, the end times is actually a, a time that we lived in from the time Jesus came to the time Jesus returns. That's this age. And in this age, in this end times, the kingdom of God starts in our heart. Jesus said that. He said his kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, when, when the, uh, the, the Romans rose up to execute him and the Jews called out, crucify him, his followers would have saved him. Peter actually tried. You know, for many years I thought Peter was a coward because he denied Jesus. But, you know, just before that, Jesus said to the apostles, sell your cloak and buy a sword. And so they bought a sword, and as soon as they went out, there was a group of an entire battalion of Roman soldiers, hundreds of troops that came to confront and arrest Jesus. And Peter jumped out there and started swinging with his sword. He was a man of incredible bravery. The reason he denied Jesus wasn't because he was a coward. It was because he didn't understand. He thought the kingdom would look a certain way. He came forward as, as the first one who was going to start the, 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 the incredible battle that Jesus would win and come and ride into Jerusalem as the conquering king and Peter was going to be right at his right hand. And when Jesus gave himself over to those powers, Peter was and all of the apostles just had no concept of what was going on because they didn't really understand the kingdom of God. They saw it in earthly ways. And sometimes throughout church history we've seen that as well where, where the church has, has, rather than being a voice that speaks into the empire and, and speaks from the sidelines declaring to the empire the word of God, the church then became the empire and that was the greatest time of, of travesty and, and, uh, and brutality in history. You know? and, and so Christianity or the kingdom of God is not about taking over this world. That's, that's what some people in other religions believe, that, that, that their job is to physically and violently take over the world and execute those who will not be in submission to particular gods because once the world is forcibly placed into submission to a god, then that will be a place of peace. But that's not the kingdom of God. That's not the kingdom that Jesus taught. And yet, Jesus talked about this kingdom that was there. John 5.24 he said, very, uh, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Notice that past tense, not, not future. Has eternal life, has crossed over from death to life. And yet, at the, and again in, uh, in Matthew 4 and Mark chapter 1, Matthew 4, 17, from that time when Jesus began to preach, he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, or the kingdom of heaven is nearby. And yet on the other hand, in John 18, verse 36, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to pre prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. And he taught his apostles to pray, Your kingdom come. And that prayer is being prayed in a sense of we're asking God for something. So on the one hand, it's here. But on the other hand, we're asking for him that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's this, there's this concept that the kingdom of God doesn't fit neatly into our little box. And see, most of Jesus' teachings then were, were to go on to explain what this kingdom was like. And you can only really understand all of those parables if, if we see them as pictures of, of the character and the nature and, and, the, and, and the... Just, I guess, like painting pictures of this is what it's like when God's authority 
is enabled and, and when we allow God's authority into our life, this is what it looks like. And then the rest of the New Testament, the, the apostles and the other New Testament writers spent the whole time trying to further elaborate and further explain this incredible kingdom theology of Jesus. And so we have uh, Paul focuses on certain areas. And they, they, nowadays theologians refer to Pauline theology, the theology of Paul. And then there's the theology of John. John had a very different theological point to his letters altogether. We had the, the gospel followed by the three letters followed by Revelation. And they all, in, in all three, the, it's this narrative of light and darkness. You know, the gospel of John is, is the light coming into the darkness. And then in, in his three letters, he talks about what that looks like in the life of a Christian when, when the light in us walks out into the darkness and then in revelation we see this picture of light coming and overcoming the darkness and so we have these theological themes that are that are woven right through the new testament but they're all trying to explain this concept that jesus spent three years trying to tell them and and at the end of those three years the apostles had no real idea what he was talking about because they got to the end and they thought well, what do you mean you had to die i mean if, if you read the gospels it was pretty clear <laughs> he made how could he have been clearer when I die, on the third day I rise again, time after time. When, I, when I'm lifted up, lifted up was a, was a term for crucifixion. He even told them how he was going to die. And they got there and they were stunned. What do you mean you're going to die? And, and they were so stunned that they all ran. But see, Jesus was, was establishing, and I guess he was laying the framework for what would then happen when the Spirit was released. Because it was only when the Holy Spirit came into their hearts on the day of Pentecost, that they finally understood. The Spirit of God ministered and, and revealed to them the things of Jesus. And they, it says in, in a few of the, of the New Testament writings, and they remembered the words of Jesus. It suddenly dawned on them, ah, this is what he was talking about. And so I guess we can't truly understand this concept of God's kingdom without understanding the role of the Spirit, the central role of the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus breathed on the apostles in John chapter 20 and said receive the spirit and they weren't baptized in the spirit until some days later some weeks later but Jesus released them out even even early in the gospels he he sent the 12 out and they were filled with the spirit at that time because they did the works of Jesus he said to them heal the sick cast out devils raise the dead um and what was the other one anyway there's four things he told them to do and they went out and they did it and they were amazed you know, the, the people were healed, the, the, the demons obeyed us. And then he sent out the 70 and the same thing happened. So Jesus was training them and preparing them for when the Spirit would come, which was the final piece in that puzzle of, of our hearts. Because without the Spirit in our hearts, we can never really understand the kingdom. All we can have is dead religion. You know, the Pharisees cop a pretty bad rap throughout the Gospels, don't they? And... and when I was growing up, I thought of the, the Pharisaic movement as this, this must have been this terrible religion and all these people that were so far from God. If you go back to the, 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 way, the way and the reason that the movement of Pharisees was started, it was actually back when the people came back from exile under Ezra and Nehemiah and the people came back and Ezra was the priest and Nehemiah was like the governor. And they decided, never again can we walk away from God's commands. Look at where that ended up. And so let's, let's have a renewed focus on obeying God. Let's have a renewed focus on doing what God commanded us so many hundreds of years earlier. It was actually uh, quite a, uh, I guess you'd say they were the original zealots. 
They had such a zeal for God. And they wanted to not only... It wasn't good enough to just obey those 613 laws that he gave back in under Moses, but they created what what later became referred to as the oral law because they thought, okay, if if you imagine that the laws we can't break are in this circle, let's have another circle around it of laws that if you don't break those laws, then we certainly won't go close enough to break God's laws. And so they started defining what it looked like to keep the Sabbath and what it looked like to do this and do that. And when you go through the Gospels, Jesus actually never once broke the law of God. He broke the law of the Pharisees. He redefined the law of God. So, for example, he didn't necessarily keep the Sabbath in the way that the people had defined the Sabbath because he was trying to show them that Sabbath is not about doing nothing on Saturday. Sabbath is about living in a place of rest with God. It's a permanent place. This is what Hebrews talks about. There's still that Sabbath rest that God has for us. And Jesus was trying to explain, oh, this is actually what it's about. When Jesus said in John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me, the people would have gone straight back to Leviticus 17 where, where the law said you are not to eat the flesh of anything with the blood still in it. And, and they saw the letter of the law said, hang on, how can you drink someone's blood? We're not allowed to drink blood. That's against the law. But Leviticus 17 continued and said, because the life of that animal is in its blood. And Jesus was saying to them, unless you have my life in you, you have no part in me. But they, they were so busy being caught up in the, the written letter of the law that they actually missed the entire spirit of what God had revealed to them through Moses. And so in the kingdom, the, the best single um, Explanation, I guess, or, or, or where most of the kingdom principles are found in one section, should we say, is in what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And I've said this before, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't necessarily a single sermon preached on a single day in a single place. It could have been, but it didn't have to be. It was a collection of Jesus' teachings that Matthew put together, and that was why Matthew and Luke recorded slightly differently. If they were both recording the narrative of one particular sermon, one or the other of them is wrong. But we, we hear of these cases where Jesus sat, uh, stood there and the, the crowds sat around for days sometimes listening to the point that, that they had nowhere to eat. That they would go to all these remote places to, to listen to him for days. And these were the teachings that Jesus would teach. They were teachings of the kingdom. He would teach them these truths and in parables. And so in this, in this particular passage, we see two aspects of the kingdom that come out that overturn two of the previous truths that the people learned from the Old Testament. And we touched on these last week. The first one was this, and this is, again, a repeated theme through the Gospels. first one was that Jesus said it's actually about the heart. You know, religion's focused on actions. Do the right thing. Don't do the wrong thing. God will be happy with you. Jesus was saying, no, no, that's not what it's about at all. And, and this is what he meant when he kept going to the Pharisees. He called them things like whitewashed tombs. He wasn't just insulting him. He was actually making quite a profound statement. He was saying, on the outside, you look beautiful. But inside, you're filled with death. You, you actually don't have life inside, just like a whitewashed tomb. Because he was saying, if your heart is right, if your heart is good, then your actions will follow. And if we get the heart stuff right, if, if we allow God to come into that darkness in our heart and bring transformation through the kingdom that starts like that little mustard seed and grows, as it grows in our heart, it'll grow so big that we can't contain it, that we've got to share it, that people around us see it because it's coming out of every pore of our skin. And that's what the kingdom's supposed to be like. It's not about conquering because we're going to get out there and make you believe that's what Constantine tried. He realised after 300 years of trying to kill them that that didn't work, so he tried to kill them if they didn't become Christians. 
and, and he created this, this empirical religion that wasn't Christianity and it still isn't Christianity and that doesn't mean that there's not many Christians who love Jesus who are in all sorts of different denominations and churches. But there are teachings that have come about through, through various things that are actually different to scriptural teachings. And I think we need to understand the truth of, of the gospel so that we can have a relationship with Jesus and not just a dead relationship, or not even a relationship, not just a dead ritual experience that, that might look good and sound good and, and even appear to be quite holy. But in actual fact, it doesn't give life. That's what Jesus was talking about with the Pharisees. So he said it's about the heart. This is what throughout Matthew 6, time and again, and we covered this last week, he gives six examples one after the other. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. So he's quoting straight from the law of Moses here. You've heard that it was said, but I say. Now there's two things here. First of all, the law of Moses was God's law. He is now redefining and saying, but now I'm giving you a new law. I'm giving you a new command. I'm giving you a new way. So he's placing himself in the place of God by doing this. You've heard that it was said this, but I say to you, this is the new way to live. And, and it's not just about don't murder, it's don't even want to murder, don't even hate someone. It's not just about don't commit adultery. There are, there are people who go through their whole life and never physically touch another person, you know, another man's wife or another woman's husband, but in their mind, in their heart, they, they're no better, they're no different, because it's about the heart. You know? and, and religious people all over the world, they can stand there and say, I've done the right thing. But in our heart, is there life there? And so all, one after the other, adultery, divorce, they were all interested in the, in, the, uh, in the specifics of divorce, when can you, when can't you? God was saying, don't you know divorce is actually not my will anyway? And, and he goes back to explain what marriage is all about. It's the heart of the matter. An eye for an eye, we referred to last week, where when, when it was brought in under the law, it was brought in as a... As a a limitation, not as a right. So it wasn't, oh, you took my eye out, so I get to take your eye out. It was God saying, no, no, if someone takes your eye out, the maximum you can do in revenge is take their eye out, no more. It was a boundary of limitation. But it had become a a right. You've hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back. And Jesus is saying, but don't, don't have that mindset in the heart. Even if someone hurts you, do the right thing to them. Even if they ask you to, to carry their, their, their uh, bag for a mile, carry it for two miles. And he said this to, to people who were under the subjugation of Rome and a Roman soldier could force them to do that and could smack them across the head for their trouble. And he said, well, even when that happens, go the extra mile. Rather than hating and, and being miserable and grumbling every step of the way, show a different heart because that's what changes the world. Matthew 23, we won't actually read it here because we're running out of time, but if if you're writing notes, write down Matthew 23, verse 23 to 28. And that's where Jesus talks about the teachers of of the law and the Pharisees, and he explains this. He explains that they do all these right things on the outside, but in their hearts they're not following him. And then the other issue he talks about is this issue that... Um, and and he, he not only talks about this one, but he shows it through his miracles. He shows it through his teachings. And that is this whole thing of clean and unclean. You see, the Old Testament, if you could sum up the, the law of Moses in, in one main sentence, it would be this. God has created you to be holy, so you must separate yourself from anything that is unholy. Because if you touch anything that is unholy or unclean, it will make you unholy or unclean. And there's chapter after chapter after chapter through Leviticus, Leviticus 5, 11, 13, 14, 15, 
all these different situations in which if you touch a certain thing you'll be unclean and you'll be unclean till evening and everything you touch in that day will be unclean and if you drink from a cup the cup will be unclean and everything you touch will be unclean and and so the people had this mindset you know that the jews they saw themselves as separate to the world they saw themselves and, and this what this became over hundreds of years was they saw themselves as better they weren't just set apart they were better these filthy unwashed gentiles not as good as us jews do you know even to this day, for many Orthodox Jews, if they, have to, if they have to do a financial transaction with a Gentile, they'll have a bowl of water between them and they'll put their money into the bowl of water and the Gentile will take it out of the bowl of water so they don't have to touch each other. You know, there's this literal thing of, I can't touch an unwashed Pharisee or an unwashed um, Gentile, I should say, a Samaritan. The good Samaritan was scandalous because Jesus was turning that on its head. But one of the main themes of what Jesus' life showed was that when the kingdom of God is inside you, whatever you touch doesn't make you unclean, you make it clean because the spirit is in you that is greater than the spirit that's in this world. And that's why when Jesus touched sickness, sickness fled. When he spoke to demons, demons fled. When he spoke to the weather, the weather stopped. He didn't stop every storm, notice that. There was actually something going on with that one, but we won't go into that tonight because that's another message. But whatever Jesus spoke into changed to reflect what he spoke. So if he spoke healing, healing came. If he spoke life, he spoke to death, the person raised up. Because he was showing us that the kingdom in you is greater than the kingdom in this world. It's really important for us to understand, and I know I've said this before as well, but this is one of the critical um, foundational understandings we need to have as Christians and that is that everything Jesus did in the pages of the Gospels he did not do simply because he was God oh because he's God yes of course he can heal people because he's God of course he can raise the dead Philippians 2 tells us that he laid aside his Godhood he didn't stop being God but he stopped acting with the with, with the automatic power that Godhood gave him and he was filled with the spirit and he lived a life as a man of God Filled with, filled with and led by the Spirit of God. He was showing us that we too can do these things. And he sent it to his apostles. He sent them out by the 12 and the 70 and he said to them, these things you'll do and even greater things because the Spirit will be in you too. And we really need to understand that because for many Christians, and, and I was the same for many years, I just it's a bit of a cop out, oh yeah, Jesus could do that because he was perfect. You know, I'm not like that, I can't do that. I'm not going to pray for you because God doesn't really heal when I pray. Because that was just something, you know, Jesus and the apostles. There's whole sections of the church that sometimes because of experience, they then create a theology that says, well, well, when I pray for people, they're not healed, so God mustn't want healing for today. Because that's easier for me to rationalise than to go to God and say, why am I not seeing this? Because the kingdom of God, when it's in us, it's greater than anything. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that we are going to go around and everyone we pray for will be healed because we've still got this concept of the age, this age and the age to come. In the age to come, all things will be made right. You know, people have often said to me, and I've, I've seen it many, many times, if God's really there, why does all this stuff happen? Why do all these bad things, why do babies die? It's usually the first one that everyone says, why do babies die? And why is all this bad stuff happening on earth? We're in an age where God's kingdom is in us. And he's given us a responsibility to bring his kingdom into this world. And so if there is evil in this world, and if there is evil in this area, then God's calling us to speak into that and to walk into those places and to bring his healing and to bring his love and to bring his grace and, and, and to bring his kingdom. 
Because when you walk into a place, the spiritual atmosphere in that place should change. When I walk into a place, the spiritual atmosphere should change. Not because of me, but if the spirit, if, if the if the God Almighty, the same one that created stars that are millions of times the size of this earth, just by speaking, if He's in my heart, what can stand against me? This is what Paul tries to say in one of his letters. And so this message of the kingdom, all of these other themes that we've talked about stem out of that because the kingdom is about the heart and the actions flow from the heart. The kingdom is in us and it flows around us. And, and, and as, as Jesus' um, love and as his spirit flows from us, we will transform this world. And then never be afraid of anything that's unclean. You know, I know some Christians who think that if they walked into a pub, that God would strike them dead. Um, just like some people think if they walk into a church, the, the, the ceiling will fall on them. Um, but you know what? If God is in us, and if this is his earth, there's nowhere that Christians shouldn't be. Now, obviously, there are certain things that we shouldn't do. There are certain things we shouldn't see, because it's all about... What, what's in our heart? What, what are we doing something for? So I know people, for example, who, who, who will go and they'll, they'll spend time with people in a pub or in a club or at a nightclub or something like that because they're actually ministering to someone. They're actually in there um, spreading the kingdom of God as opposed to, oh, God says I can go anywhere, so I'm just going to go out and go partying and boozing and dancing all night. And that's not what I'm talking about. But if we understand the kingdom, there is nowhere that doesn't need God. There's no way that doesn't need God's spirit. And how's God's spirit going to get somewhere unless one of us carries it there? And if we understand that concept, then so much of the gospel messages, so much of Jesus' teaching, his parables, his miracles, everything he did will make so much more sense. And then to finish it off, he took the consequence, the one thing that stood in our way from receiving the spirit and from having the power of God, he took that on himself. And, and once for all, he dealt with sin. Before that time, sin was never dealt with. It was covered over. In that one action, he dealt with sin. And he declared, just like he declared in Genesis 1, that let there be light, there was light. He declared, you are righteous. And, and now we're moving into New Testament theology of, of the other New Testament authors, which we're going to cover in the next few weeks. So I'll probably stop that one there. But I just really feel that we need to grab hold of this in our own Christian walk and, and as a church too. If we understand the kingdom that is in us and, and if we are open, first of all, to receiving the spirit of God and then to actually going out and changing the world through that spirit that's in us, then what we'll find is we'll find a radical transformation of our families, of our workplaces, of our town. Because this is not something we just do on Sunday and Friday night. This is actually something that goes into every part of our life. And when our workplaces start seeing the kingdom of God in our lives, then they'll be changed. When our schools start seeing the kingdom of God in our lives, they'll be changed. And, and this is the message of the kingdom. This is what starts as a mustard seed and ends up as the biggest tree of all. And uh, I, I believe, I've heard this many times, I think Ben, I've heard it from you too, is the church is God's answer for this world. And I'd say within that, the kingdom of God is his answer and he's given that to the church. All those promises are not just for you individual, it's for us collective. Uh, if you look at the original language, and I'm not quite the Greek scholar, but all that language is plural, not singular. We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.